Blog Talk Radio. everybody doing today? How is everybody doing today? Um, a lot of stuff to talk about. Trump is still pretending like the election didn't happen and didn't go against him. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> He's a fucking idiot. It's unbelievable. Worst coup in human history. Um, now, I also have Trump making moves in the Middle East on the way out the door. Be careful. Don't give him too much credit because it's largely bullshit. So I'll explain all of that. You're not going to want to miss that. And also, on on top of Iraq and Afghanistan, we also have um, Iran to talk about, which is a story that's not getting nearly enough coverage, but it may even be the bigger story than Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I already own notes beginning already. 2024 speculation, 2024 questions. Uh, Are we ever going to get a fucking break are we ever going to get a break? I will be talking about Ben Shapiro, who lost his shit over dudes in dresses. I will be diving into uh, Joe Biden's speech on the economy. I'll talk about Obama's new book and a passage that I found fascinating. Nancy Pelosi is probably going to cruise to uh, re-election as the House Speaker, which makes me want to break stuff. So anyway, without further ado, let's get started. And uh, we'll do that with President Trump and what's going on with foreign policy. Here we go. President Trump is making moves in the Middle East on his way out the door, and um, there's a lot to say about it. Breaking. U.S. will draw down troops in Afghanistan and Iraq to 2,500 each by January 15th, 2021, says new acting Secretary of Defense Miller, saying repositioning of troops does not equate change to U.S. policies or objectives. 
There are now approximately 4,500 troops in Afghanistan, 3,000 troops in Iraq. Do me a favor. Pause this segment, go back, read that tweet again, and then read it again, and then read it one more time. Okay? This is a farce. This is a farce. Right now, you have 4,500 troops in Afghanistan. They're going to bring that down to 2,500. You have 3,000 troops in Iraq. They're going to bring that down to 2,500. So they're taking 500 troops out of Iraq? They're taking a couple thousand troops out of Afghanistan and still leaving 2,500? Now, beyond that, look at the wording. Look at the wording. The wording is repositioning of troops. Repositioning? Repositioning of troops. And they say, quote, it does not equate change to U.S. policies or objectives. This is a farce. This is a joke. What they're going to do is the same thing that they did in Syria. Remember when Trump, quote, pulled troops out of Syria and then he just moved them to a different part of Syria to protect oil fields? This is, we're talking about the same sort of thing here. They're going to move them from one part of Iraq and one part of Afghanistan, either to another part of Iraq and another part of Afghanistan, or maybe to Saudi Arabia or something like that. And Trump is going to go around saying, I withdrew the troops, I ended the wars, this is incredible. And then the Democrats are going to go, oh my God, how could you withdraw the troops? This is so terrible, you should send more troops. They're playing us for fools. They're not ending the wars. I tweeted this last night. Anybody who's calling this a withdrawal thinks that just the tip is not penetration. That's as good of an analogy as you could ever come up with. No, 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 we're not having sex, and this isn't penetration, because it's just the tip. 2,500 troops, and it's not even 2,500 troops in the Middle East. It's 2,500 troops, respectively. So each country, Iraq has 2,500, and Afghanistan has 2,500. What are we doing here? What are we doing? See this guy? Giant cuck to the military-industrial complex. That's what this guy is. This guy's a beta male. He's a path of least resistance guy. And I guarantee you that there were conversations where it's like, okay, how could we give the president the appearance of a withdrawal without actually withdrawing? And this is the bullshit they came up with. I give no credit for this. None. None. You want to know why? Because under President Obama, he did the same shit. And I called it out when it was Obama. Why would I not call it out when it's Donald Trump? Obama would yo-yo the troop levels all the time. Oh, we're going to take out a certain number of troops. Oh, we're going to, you know, then eventually put them back in. It's called mission creep. Slowly but surely over time, you build back up. That's exactly what's happening here. How could anybody fall for this? Oh, my God, how could anybody fall for this? This is sucker shit, guys. We're not going anywhere. We're parked there forever is what it appears like. And don't take my word for it. I remember when Lindsey Graham was running for president. By the way, LOL at that. Um, he, he said when he was asked, hey, how do we get out? When do we get out? He says, you don't get out. Talking about it was either Iraq or Afghanistan, but it was in the Middle East, right? And he's like, I'm, you know, when you look at, we still have troops in like Germany and Korea. So why would we get out? Let's just stay there permanently. They're saying this. They're saying this at a time when our infrastructure gets a grade of D+. 30 million Americans have no health insurance. And about 30% of the country is on the brink of being foreclosed on or evicted. But we can spend tens of billions of dollars every single month occupying foreign countries that don't want us there. I'm going to break something. 
I'm going to break something. I feel my blood pressure rising as I talk about this. This, I, I knew that we had lost the plot and we were done when they stopped even pretending to care about missions and objectives and declaring victory. I remember early on in the wars, they did this whole kabuki theater dog and pony show where they would have the generals sit in front of Congress and the generals would say, well, I think we need more time because we have to reach this objective and that objective, and in order to do that, we need X amount more time. And then after a while, it was just like, shh, we're going to stay there, and there's going to be no accountability, and there's going to be no missions or goals or objectives. We're just permanently going to stay there. So why are we there? Well, I'll, just, I'll ask the question. Why are we there? What's the point? Why would we be doing it? And I'm sorry, but there's no good answers at this point. If you believe in the answer that it's to protect the homeland or whatever garbage, you're the biggest sucker on the planet, and I have a bridge to sell you. It's protect the homeland. Oh, we have to fight the terrorists. That's what we're doing. We armed the terrorists in many instances. We armed them in Syria. We give Saudi Arabia multi-billion dollar weapons deals and they spread radical Islam all around the world. What are we talking about? Are you insane? Oh, it's because we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. <laughs> Unfortunately, it has a lot more to do with natural resources. Afghanistan has trillions of dollars in mineral wealth. A lot of the stuff that gets into your smartphone comes from Afghanistan. We don't want anybody else to have that. So we stay there under the guise of, oh, we're protecting the world or something, and we jack natural resources. Iraq, it has a lot to do with oil. Oil production shot through the roof after we invaded and occupied. I'm sorry, but this is the truth. It has a lot to do with this stuff. Opium as well in Afghanistan is another thing. I mean, I could go on and on here. Beyond that, war in and of itself is just profitable. Don't take my word for it. Smedley Butler, there's, a, there's you know, we have the military-industrial complex. There are some people who make a lot of money because war has its own economy around it, and so many jobs are created as a result of war. I mean, we have jobs tied to the military-industrial complex in every single state in the United States of America. So we have a perverse incentive structure and a perverse system, and we have two presidents now who ran on ending the wars, or at least ending one of them, and none of them ended any of them. The wars have just expanded. They're both hawks to differing degrees, but they're both hawks. Under Barack Obama, we were bombing seven countries. We, we got out of Iraq for a minute and a half. We went right back in. Now, by the way, watch this. Your adversarial press, I guarantee you, hear me now, quote me later. Your adversarial press that's supposed to hold power accountable, what are they going to do? First of all, they're going to just talk about this as if it's a withdrawal. The Democrats are going are to resist as if they're against withdrawing. And then the media is going to cover horror stories. Of, oh, my God, there was a Taliban attack inside Afghanistan. How could you have pulled out? Send in more troops. Send in more U.S. troops. I guarantee you this is what's going to happen. So everybody will be resisting from a pro-war position. Their default perspective is, of course we should be there permanently. We've been there 19 years. The war is almost old enough to drink. The war is almost old enough to go to war. Are you kidding me? I mean, it's, um, this stuff drives me crazy. It's a worst-case scenario because Trump is doing fake anti-war stuff, and then that means the Democrats and the media are now going to resist by being more pro-war. And I'm over here like, you're all fucking idiots. Trump's an idiot and a beta cuck for not actually withdrawing. You know how you withdraw? You withdraw. You're the commander-in-chief, bitch. You say, we're going to... Bring home all the troops right now, and there's going to be zero in the Middle East. Zero. If you're, oh, Kyle, oh, isn't that radical? The thing that's radical is what we've been doing. We've been there for 19 years with thousands of people. Hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians are dead. That's the radical thing. We wasted $7 trillion in the Middle East. 
That's the radical thing. It's not radical to come home. What right do we have to be? These wars were illegal in the first place. We have a right to just set up shop and, oh, I don't care that you don't want me here. I'm going to stay here. Imagine somebody did that to us. Imagine China occupied, you know, uh, open land in Texas. Like, uh, we don't care that you're against this. We're just going to, we're, uh, I don't know, upholding law and order or something. Piss off. We'd be like, okay, it's time to go to war. It's time to, you know, defend ourselves. So why does it not work the same way for other countries? Are you kidding me? Do we care about international law or do we not care about international law? Now, the answer is you do, I do, they don't. It's all kabuki theater. Withdrawing to 2,500 in each place. That's not a withdrawal. It's not a withdrawal. This is exactly the kind of bullshit Obama did. Fake anti-war nonsense. Shuffling troops from one area in the Middle East to the other. He's going to pretend like he ended the wars. And then the Democrats and the media are going to be like, how could you? You should have sent even more troops in there, and um, we're all going to want to we're all going to want the um, sweet relief of death. We're all going to crave non-existence as we watch this unfold because this is as bad as it gets. There's so few voices who are going to tell you the truth about this. Even the people who will posture as anti-war are not going to be anti-war because Trump, what Trump's doing here is not anti-war. So even when you have Republicans defend what Trump is going to do here. They're going to be defending keeping 2,500 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, respectively. That's what they're going to do. So they're going to defend a position that's not anti-war and pretend like it's anti-war. Oh, man. Oh, it's wearing me down, ladies and gentlemen. It is wearing me down. For fuck's sake, can we get some real victories for the love of God? All right, I'm not done yet. Now we're going to move on to the Democrats' response and get ready to be triggered as fuck. President Trump is doing a fake withdrawal of troops in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, He's going to pretend it's a withdrawal. It's not a withdrawal. There's still 5,000 troops there. And he's probably going to shuffle thousands of others from one place in the Middle East to another place in the Middle East and not actually bring them home. So it's kabuki theater. It's nonsense. It's bullshit. He's a fraud. That He's a beta cuck. And he's caving to the deep state and the military-industrial complex. Um, but the Democrats are now responding to Trump. And, you know, this is the hashtag resistance people. So let's see how they decided to hashtag resist Trump on this move. All of the military commanders have spoken up and said, this is the wrong thing to do. We want our troops home, but let's not bring them home in, in body bags. And that's potentially what's going to happen if this president gets his way and puts his own political timeline ahead of our national security. That is Iraq War veteran Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat of Illinois. Now, notice the dirty trick they did here. Send out an Iraq War veteran to make the case. Therefore, now anybody disagrees with it, how could you disagree with an expert who went and fought in the war? Did you go fight in the war? Oh, you didn't fight in the war, so how about you? Shut the fuck up. That's the dirty trick that they're doing here. Now, look at the argument she just made. They're not resisting Trump by saying what I just said, which is, hold on now. This is a fake withdrawal. You say you're withdrawing. You're going to leave 2,500 troops in Iraq, 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, probably shuffle thousands of others to other areas in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia. That's not a withdrawal. You're pretending to be anti-war and you're pro-war. Who are you kidding? That's how you resist. You resist by saying, get, get them out. Get, get, actually get them out. None of this nonsense, 
fake theater that you're doing. Instead, what do they do? All the military commanders say this is the wrong thing to do. And sure, we should maybe get the troops out, but you don't get them out in the way that you're talking about. You get them out, you know, you listen to them and do what they want to do. And if we bring them home, it'll be in body bags the way you want to do it. Hold on now. A withdrawal, by definition, makes those body bags impossible. They're not in there anymore to be killed over there. So what are you talking about? The argument is listen to the military commanders. The military commanders have been saying the same thing every step of the way. Give us more time. Give us more troops. Give us more money. That's what they always say. They've never not said that. Let's, let's, let's be done with this myth about generals and commanders in the military as if they're, like, they're apolitical neutral experts. No, everything they talk about is highly political. We're talking about war. There's a reason why we have civilian control of the war. There's a reason why the president is the commander-in-chief. You know, these people, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So they're always going to want more time, more money, and more troops. Now, don't take my word for it. This is the easiest lesson of history to learn when you go back and look at the Vietnam War. Every single step of the way, every president was being advised by generals who were saying, we, got, we need more troops, more time. And um, let us, we'll, we'll win, but we just, we need more money, more troops, more time. So shut up and give us that. And then every single president would escalate and escalate and escalate. And more and more Americans would die and more and more civilians in Vietnam would die. And then eventually at some point, one of them was like, you know what? I think you're all full of shit. I'm not going to give you any more time. I'm not going to give you any more money. I'm not going to give you any more soldiers. I'm withdrawing. And that was obviously the right thing to do. If we were listening to them every step of the way, we'd still be in Vietnam today, today. I mean, we've been in the Middle East for damn near 20 years. How much more time do you want, and what do you want to do? What's your goal? What would be victory? Define victory for me. What were the original reasons given for us going into Iraq? Oh, we've got to get Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein's been dead skis for a long time, dog. He's nowhere to be found. Done. Mission accomplished, bitch. Come home. That's why you said we have to go into Iraq. Okay, mission accomplished. Done. Why are we still there? What about Afghanistan? Well, see, the thing is, with al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, they were being protected in Afghanistan. Okay, he's dead too. Been dead for a long time. What are we still doing there? Like, they just move the goalposts, move the goalposts, move the goalposts. The original reason, got to get Saddam Hussein, got to get Osama bin Laden. Okay, mission accomplished. Then what? Well, you got to get the remnants of the terrorists or something, whatever. Okay, according to our own intelligence agencies, there's only like a couple hundred al-Qaeda operatives in Afghanistan. What are we doing there? What are we doing there? Well, they've stopped even giving reasons. They don't even give you the respect of bullshitting you. They don't even give you the respect of bullshitting you. Think about that. Okay, whatever. Go watch Netflix. Go play video games. We're going to be over here waging an endless war, spending billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars every single month. And we're going to have some body bags, you know, pile up. But what are you going to do? Civilians on their side, some soldiers on our side. It is what it is. If you're not pissed about this, you're not paying attention. So this argument from the Democrats, oh, yes, I want to get out, but don't get out this way. If the argument was don't get out this way, get out all the troops right now, right this second, then I'd be like, yeah, that's the argument you're supposed to make. The argument you're supposed to make is he's pretending to be anti-war. He's not anti-war. We're actually anti-war. Instead, they're going with... Follow the commanders and the generals who want us to stay there forever. Uh, if we bring them home now, it'll be in body bags. What? That, 
that doesn't even make sense. As I said, if you, if you actually were to withdraw, by definition, that means no more body bags. You're withdrawing. No more American body bags. Yes, issues might arise in Iraq and Afghanistan, but we have no legal right to even be in that country. This war was illegal under international law. If something happens, that's their problem. You know, if you want to give them some sort of reparations for how we destroyed the country, that's fine. I guess I'd support that. We did destroy the country. But the idea that, oh, my God, something happened, so now we need to go back in. And by the way, that's exactly how the media is going to cover this moving forward. The media is going to position themselves with the Democratic position. And so they're going to say, the troops, the commanders, the generals say we need to stay there. They're the experts. How dare you even do a fake withdrawal? That's what the media is going to say. And then when we cut the troop level in Iraq or Afghanistan at all, they'll immediately try to find stories of like, ah, see, everything went to shit after we withdrew. As if everything is hunky-dory and lovely with us, with us illegally occupying these countries. I can't, guys. I can't. I think, this, I think this story broke me. I really do. This story broke me. Because Trump is doing fake anti-war stuff, keeping 2,500 troops in Iraq, 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, shuffling thousands of others to other places in the Middle East, just like he did with Syria, where he pretended to withdraw and he just moved the troops from one place to another to protect the oil, steal the oil. Like, that's fake anti-war stuff. So what we need is people actually calling out how this is fake anti-war stuff, and he's a cuck, and he's doing exactly what the military-industrial complex wants. Instead, we get Democrats who are like, how dare you? You should be more hawkish. You should keep more troops there. You should listen to the commanders and the generals who always say, more money, more time, more troops. If we bring them home, it'll be in body bags. This is, that's the grossest line I've ever heard on this topic. Because what she's advocating for will unquestionably lead to more body bags. Unquestionably. Unquestionably. But somehow she flips it. And you can't disagree with her because she's an Iraq war veteran. That's the dirty trick that they're playing. Of course, we should have known. We should have seen it coming from a mile away. Even with Trump doing fake anti-war stuff, they pretend like he's doing real anti-war stuff and they're more pro-war. I hate them all. I hate them all. I hate Trump for doing the fake anti-war stuff. He should do real anti-war stuff. I hate the Democrats for pivoting to his right. And you wonder why people, gigantic swaths of the country, the largest voting contingent is non-voters. You wonder why? Because people, if they, if they catch a whiff of this stuff, they're like, oh my God, this is all bullshit. They're all full of shit. They're all terrible. I can't believe the stuff that they're, that they're trying to tell me here. I can't believe that they think this, they, they sound reasonable. I want to break something. I really do. I have the urge to break something. That's how this makes me feel. Okay. All right, let's talk about Joe Biden's cabinet. This is something I'm not happy about. So I have an update for you on Joe Biden's cabinet. And it's not looking pretty. Kenneth Vogel of the New York Times says the following. He has venture capital executive Ronald Klain is going to be his chief of staff. Also in his administration is going to be former pharmaceutical and insurance lobbyist Steve Ricchetti, top Democrat recipient of big oil money Cedric Richmond, 
co-founder of firm that represents pharma and private equity, um, Jen O'Malley Dillon. We're just getting started, ladies and gentlemen. We are just getting started. His administration is going to be a who's who of corporatists who have conflicts of interest. Now, I could already sense, you know, the things that people are saying and the objections to this. They're going to say something along the lines of, yeah, but it's better than Trump. Yeah, but Trump, you know, he put Ivanka and Jared in his cabinet. And then he also has the Goldman Sachs people and all the insiders. True. I'm not, I'm not doing this segment and, like, comparing it to Trump and saying, like, well, isn't Biden so bad on this front and wasn't Trump good on this front? No, Trump was abysmal. Of course. Duh. That's not hard. That's a very easy thing to point out, a very easy thing to digest, a very easy thing to attack. And I've done it a million times. Of course I have. But that doesn't excuse any of what, anything of what Biden's doing here. I mean, you have to have oatmeal for brains to not understand that. And unfortunately, a lot of the responses to this tweet were, oh, my God, disgusting. I wanted to shower after I read them. When my team does corruption, it's okay. Because it's better than Trump. Better than Trump. Better than Trump. There should be zero lobbyists in the administration, zero people with conflicts of interest. Zero corrupt corporatists in the administration. Instead, he's going to pack his administration full of them. Now, listen, I hate to do this, but I kind of don't. All the people who are like, we're going to push him left. Hold your L, dog. I told you that wasn't going to happen. Listen, that, that says nothing about how you should have voted. Okay? As I said, you could make a case on the merits of who Joe Biden actually is, that, yeah, he's a lesser evil than Trump. If you write down all the policy positions, there are more areas where a leftist would agree with Biden versus Trump. But I, I wanted people to be honest about the reality of it. So it's honest to make the case his neoliberal corporatism is preferable to Trump's neoconservative, neo-authoritarianism, right? Like, there's a case to be made on the merits, but instead a lot of lefties were not arguing on the merits. They were arguing in fantasy land, and they were, arguing, and they were deluding themselves on purpose. And the argument was, no, no, it's okay, because we'll get them in there, and then we'll push them left. You ain't pushing them nowhere, son. You ain't pushing them nowhere. You ain't going to do Dickie McGee's acts. We see his record. We know the stuff he does. We know he wrote the crime bill. We know he, he um, was for the bankruptcy bill. We know he voted for the Iraq War. We know he voted for the Patriot Act. This is a moderate Republican. That's who we're dealing with. So again, if you want to make the case a moderate Republican is preferable to a far-right Republican, that's a fair case. Go right ahead. I'm not going to object to the points you make because you'll probably make a lot of accurate points. But I could not sit by and let people make, oh, we're going to push him left argument. You ain't pushing him nowhere. He's going to do exactly what we knew he was going to do every single step of the way. And so the way that you were supposed to deal with him is get concessions up front, Bernie. Bernie. Bernie's out there doing a campaign in the media to try to become labor secretary. You could have gotten that as a guarantee in a meeting with Biden before you dropped out. Hey, Joe, I want to drop out and I want to help you and I want to campaign for you. And I want to make sure my 30% block of the party is 100% on board with you. But maybe I just sit on the sidelines and you're on your own and I don't campaign and try to get my 30% block on your side. If you don't reach, if you don't give me this list of demands, Here's my 10 executive orders. Here's the position I want. He didn't do that. He did everything Joe wanted up front, and then afterwards was like, can you please maybe you 
if it wouldn't be too much of a bother, I'd maybe like to be labor secretary, and maybe I'd like to tell you if it, if you'd be kind enough to do these executive orders. You had to get it. Up, he would have made a deal. He would have made a deal. Now, he wouldn't have given you 10 of 10 executive orders. Maybe he'd give you 5 of the 10. Maybe he'd just give you 3 of the 10. Maybe he'd be the biggest dick on the planet and only give you 2 of the 10. But that's still two tangible things. You could go to the Democratic, your base, and say, look, look what I got. Look what I got. Also, by the way, maybe I have a position in the administration. Maybe I negotiated a position in the administration for myself because who you, who's on your staff is actually just as important, if not more important, than policy because it's an indication of the kind of arguments that you know they're going to have behind the scenes, and then you know there's a chance for a left-wing argument to win if a left-winger is in the room and if a left-winger is in a position of power and authority. Instead, you got no concessions. You deluded yourself. We're going to push them left, and now you got this. Congratulations. Congratulations. I'm putting the cart before the horse and doing this exactly backwards. Exactly backwards. Give him everything he wants and then hope later on he does the right What? What? Here you go. Here you go. Venture capital executives, pharmaceutical and insurance lobbyists, big oil money recipients. I can't, man. I can't. It drives me crazy. It drives me crazy. We're at a point in history which is crying out screaming out for a new FDR. We need a new New Deal. Instead, what we got is business as usual. We got Barack Obama 2.0, or we got Bill Clinton 3.0, because Barack Obama was Bill Clinton 2.0. We got neoliberal corporatism, third-way politics, triangulation, at a time where we need a social democratic flamethrower like FDR who's going to crack skulls and take no shit. This is an indication of what he's going to do as president, just so you know. So listen, I said it before, I'll say it again. His first day or his first week will be the best, where he'll do executive orders that are decent, that are good, get us back in the Paris Climate Agreement, things of that nature. Reverse the things that Trump did when Trump deregulated. So bring back regulations for coal plants, for example, clean up the water supply. There's good stuff that's going to happen in the first day or week. After that, buckle up. Because these guys are just itching to work with Republicans and make deals and give them what they want and then pretend, pretend like, oh, we're the serious adults who get real stuff done, like cutting Social Security and Medicare and pretending like we needed to do it and we're just reforming it. Uh, Pain is all I know. Now we're going to speculate about 2024, which is kind of fun. And also kind of devastating and miserable. Here we go. The 2024 speculation is already starting. There are already polls on this question, and it's kind of amazing. So now we're going to look at the Republican side and see what's going on here. This is a poll from Ledger 360. Um, guess who's number one? Old Donnie Trump, already number one by quite a bit. 25% support Trump in 2024. 25% of Republican primary voters. 19% 
say Mitt Romney, 14% say Mike Pence, 9% say Nikki Haley, 8% say Ted Cruz, 8% John Kasich, 7% Marco Rubio, 5% um, Tucker Carlson, 5% Tucker Carlson, Mike Pompeo, 2%, um, Tim Scott, 2%, Rick Santorum, <laughs> Rick Santorum, 1%, or as I've been calling him recently, Cucktorum, because he's on CNN and he's been just... He's a husk of a man. He's a shell of his former self. I remember back to like the 2012 debates when he was running for president. And he was just, he was just steamrolling people. Yeah, I think you're full of it. I don't like what you're saying. Yeah, I'm anti-abortion. Yeah, I want tax cuts. Like he was just a hardcore conservative and loud and aggressive. And he would debate with people and he wouldn't back down. And then now he's on CNN and he's like, you know, Van Jones, I'd really appreciate it if maybe you would tell me that my commentary was okay and I know that I'm... I'm not a bigot, I'm not a racist, so I'm going to defer to your wisdom, and if you say something, I'll say that's a decent point. He loves to he loves to do the thing where he, like, sort of defers up front to to show everybody, like, oh, that's cool. I, I mean, they'll say, they'll make some insane CNN, you know, corporate Democratic argument. He's like, well, you know, I mean, I think you're kind of, I mean, I think that you're kind of, you're right when you say that, but I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I, the thing where I, the part where I disagree, there's a little part where I disagree. He does this all the time. He, that's why he's cucktorum now. He's not Rick Santorum. <laughs> he's a caged animal now on CNN where he's just deferring to everybody. Right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess you got a point there. I mean, please like me. <laughs> so anyway, uh, he's at 1%. Hilarious. He's even registering as all, at all. Um, so why are we talking about this? We're talking about this, so of course I can brag and say I told you so. What did I say? What did I say to you? I told you that there's a fracture in the Republican Party. And they're going to have a civil war in the same way that the Democrats have a civil war. On the Democratic side, it's the corporatists versus the left. And on the Republican side, what you have is they agree on policy. At the end of the day, they agree on policy across the board. But there's a giant cultural divide now in the Republican Party. And that cultural divide is the Trumpists versus the elite establishment Republican types. Okay? The, the civility and decorum Republicans who want all the same policies as the Trumpists, but they also want the veneer of respectability, the facade of Americanism and, and seriousness. Okay? And this is what we're seeing here. So I told you there was going to be a, a Republican Civil War. And what do I always say? You're going to have the Trumpists, and then what do I say? You're going to have the Mitt Romney types. Literally the top two, Donald Trump, Mitt Romney. So I was even more right than I realized, because I was just saying him as a stand-in for the sort of like fake, serious, establishment-type Republican. But no, it's literally that this is the split in the party, and it's playing out in real time, and Trump's on top, and Romney's right behind. And um, listen, I think Trump is going to run in 2024. And there is going to be a giant fracture because the establishment Republicans do just sort of want to move on past Trump. But they're not really going to be able to because Trump has the heart of the base. And a lot of this divide in the Republican Party, honestly, it comes down to class. And so you're going to have a lot of middle income, lower middle income, and poor folks in the Republican Party. They're the pro-Trump people. They like him culturally. They like how he has no filter. They like how he screams at everybody and calls them fake news. He hates the people that they hate, so they like him. When it comes to Mitt Romney, that's going to be the some middle class but upper middle class and wealthy Republicans 
like the Arizona Sunbelt type Republicans who just voted for Biden. They would vote for Romney over Biden. So there's a real divide now in the Republican Party, a deep cultural divide where they want to put the filter back on. They want to put the veneer of fake respectability back on. And so you're going to have that Republican civil war. It's going to happen, and it's happening in real time right now. And you see the split, Trump 25%, Romney 19%. And I think, the Republic, I, think it, I think it'll stay roughly that much. Like, I think in a primary in 2024 on the Republican side, I think Trump would win. But I think that there would be either Romney or somebody representing that, that wing and temperament, that portion of the party, that would do okay, that would get a decent chunk. So, by the way, there were other interesting things in this poll here. Um, Pence being at 14%, those are, he's interesting because he has the temperament of the establishment types, but he's, he's been the most loyal person to Trump that there is. So that may actually be an asset to him in an interesting way. I'm very interested in his political future because that could pay dividends in the Republican Party how loyal he's been to Trump. But it also means he might have to stay in Trump's shadow if Trump runs in 2024. So he probably feels like he's in a weird position because I'm sure he has presidential aspirations. Um, Nikki Haley, I think, is the biggest, I think is the only reason Nikki Haley is viewed on the right as like, oh, she's the one and she's super serious, is because then they get to play identity politics. Then they get to say, not only do we have a woman, we have a woman of color who's beloved by the establishment, who's a hardcore right winger. So her at 9% is fascinating. Um, I don't know if she could hold that because she has the personality of watching paint dry in a similar way to Tom Cotton. Um, And then you have Ted Cruz at 8%. Ted Cruz is a sleeper in terms of how well he could do in a Republican primary because, remember, he finished second to Trump last time. He finished second to Trump. Now, I think he's the grossest person on the planet. I'm sure you do too. I'm sure his wife does as well. Um, But it's one of those things where He's already shown us evidence of life in these primaries, so that could be something that he could make a run at it, even though I think he ultimately is not White House bound. Um, Tucker Carlson's another one where I think he's, he has a real shot. He has a real shot. He's Trumpism without the baggage. Um, and a lot of the others are just like Rubio, done. He's trying to rebrand himself as like a populist Republican, and he's not going anywhere. He's he doesn't have the X factor that's needed to get through one of these things. Pompeo, nonsense at 2%. Ridiculous. He's not going anywhere. Tim Scott, no. Rick Santorum is going to continue cucking himself on CNN. So anyway, here we are. This is what we're looking at for 2024. And you're already starting to see the fracture. You're already starting to see the Republican Civil War. And listen, I can't wait to watch that play out. Okay, now let me do the Iran segment and then we'll take a quick break. Trump asked for options to attack Iran and he did it days after the 2020 race was called for Biden. So I'm going to, we're going to talk more about that in a second, but let me give you some of what they say here. Last Thursday, President Donald J. Trump assembled senior advisors in the Oval Office to ask them whether he could take action against Iran's most important nuclear weapons site within the coming weeks, the New York Times reported on Monday. 
A range of senior advisors dissuaded the president from moving ahead with a military strike. The advisors, including Vice President Mike Pence, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Christopher C. Miller, the Acting Defense Secretary, and General Mark A. Milley, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, warned that a strike against Iran's facilities could easily escalate into a broader conflict in the last weeks of Mr. Trump's presidency, according to the Times. The International Atomic Energy Agency reported on November 11th that Iran's uranium stockpile was 12 times bigger than permitted. Pause. The word permitted there is questionable because we pulled out of the Iran deal. We ripped up the Iran deal. So they don't have to listen to the terms anymore because we ripped up the deal. So of course they're going to do that. Of course they're going to have more uranium than they would have if they were still in the deal. If we didn't rip it up, they wouldn't have done that. And if you say, Kyle, that's speculation. It's really not. Every single time the IAEA checked to see if they were abiding by the terms of the deal, they were abiding by it 100%. So that's our fault that they did this. That's the truth. They might not like it, but that's the truth. Now, why did he do this? What happened? I thought Donald Trump was, you know, Mr. I'm going to pretend to be anti-war. What happened was when it was clear that Biden won the race. Now, Trump's, of course, still denying it on Twitter and, you know, acting like that's not true. Of course, it is true. Biden won the race. Um, his thought process was, how do I leave a mess for Biden and make it so that he doesn't get back into the 2015 Iranian nuclear deal? That was his thought process. His thought process was, I need to leave a mess for Joe Biden. I need to make it impossible for him to get back in that Iranian nuclear agreement. What's one way to do that? Let's launch an attack. So, and I've said this to you a million times, he has no core. He has no real beliefs. He has no ideology. He has no philosophy. He's a vapid, empty shell of a man who's driven by petty personal grievances. Okay? And here you have an example where, because of a personal grievance, I lost to this guy. Let me try to get back at him in any way I can. What if I attack a sovereign country? What if I start a war? Just so that when Biden comes in, he's like, oh, my God, now i got to deal with a crisis. i got to deal with a war with Iran. That's the kind of man Donald Trump is. I know you know that. A lot of people don't know that. When he pretends to go around talking like he's anti-war. By the way, same time this story comes out, he's doing fake anti-war stuff in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's, he, he's acting like we're withdrawing. We're not. We're keeping 2,500 troops in Iraq, 2,500 troops in Afghanistan, and we're shuffling thousands of others to other places around the Middle East. It's a farce. He's not actually withdrawing. He's pretending like he's withdrawing. So he's doing the fake anti-war stuff there, and he's doing the pro-war stuff here, because there is no underlying philosophy. There's no underlying philosophy. Pro-war here, fake anti-war here. I don't know. A lot of what, you know, motivates Trump is just a reactionary impulse to do the opposite of whatever Obama did. And that's why, by the way, with North Korea, you've seen him try to get peace, because Obama wasn't able to. And so he was like, well, if I get that, then I can say I did it and Obama didn't. But the same approach with North Korea that Trump has is the same approach that Biden and Obama had with Iran. So why would you not try to make peace with them? Why would you not stay in that Iranian nuclear agreement? You want an Iran-style nuclear agreement with North Korea, but you don't like the Iran-style nuclear agreement with Iran because you're a hack and you're an idiot and you haven't thought through these things and you don't understand the consequences of your action actions because you're a narcissist and you coasted to the White House on that alone. And here we are. By the way, how lucky are we? How lucky are we 
that the advisors were like, that's not a good idea now. And I think the reason why is because they know at a time like this with the transition that's happening, it could be disaster on top of disaster. So I honestly believe if Trump had floated this a year ago, they would have done it. Because everybody he named on that list is a neocon, is a war hawk. And they're all for regime change, all of them. So the fact that they were like, no, 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 we can't do this, what that tells me is they realize that there's absolutely 0% chance this works out in a way where they get the desired result of regime change in Iran and they don't cause another absolute disaster and catastrophe in the Middle East that's beyond comprehension and recognition. And also they're probably afraid of some sort of attack in response from Iran, not against America, but against Israel, because that would be their neighbor and they would view Israel probably as part of whatever's happening against them. So I think that the fact that we had to rely on neocon warhawk war criminals to be like, whoa, 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 this is a little too far even for us. We live in an absolute nightmare, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot tell you how big of a story this is. I cannot tell you how big of a story this is. We had to rely on the, the intelligence of people like Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo? <laughs> oh, sweet Jesus. Oh, sweet Jesus. I mean, we're holding this thing together with duct tape and bubble gum until Biden gets in there, dog. This guy is as volatile as humanly possible. He's, he, he's insane, but I was going to say he's barely hanging on to his last, you know, last little bit of sanity, but it's gone. It's gone. If you look at his Twitter feed now, every single tweet is like, fake news, I won the election, actually. That's what I think. I think I actually won the election. And you read it, and you're like, oh, my God, this guy really needs, like, Seroquel in a straitjacket. What is going on? When you read a story like this, I'm further convinced of that opinion. Because this is as bad as it gets, man. I really can't believe that we had to rely on neocon warhawks to say, Mr. President, that's a bridge too far. But that's what happened. That's what happened. By the way, if John Bolton was still in the administration, he would have told Trump, yeah, do that. Uh Uh-huh. Just to leave Biden a mess, just to leave Biden a mess, he would have started a war. This is the kind of dude to, like, smear the Oval Office with feces on his last day because he simply doesn't know how to take a loss. Okay. All right, guys, let's take a break. When we come back, still got a lot more in the show. Candace Owens and Ben Shapiro are incredibly triggered by men in dresses. Stay right there. We'll be right back.
Alright, y'all. We back in this bitch. We are back. We are back. Okay. Alright, here we go. Let's continue. Let's continue. I believe we were on Ben Shapiro. Squeaky Benjamin. All right, let me set this up for you. This is an interesting. This is an interesting story. Candace Owens called out Harry Styles because Harry Styles wore a dress on the cover of Vogue. Um, I think it was actually the first time. I heard this. This I don't know if this is true. Um, I think I heard David Dole say it. I didn't fact check it, but usually he's a solid source. He said that um, this is the first time a man was ever on the cover of uh, of Vogue, I think, alone. First time a man was ever alone on the cover of Vogue, and it's Harry Styles in a dress. So Candace Owens um, was like, how dare you? This is you know, whatever, downfall of Western civilization and feminizing men. And so she said the following, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It is an outright attack. Bring back manly men. Now, Ben Shapiro jumped in to agree with her. Before we get to Ben Shapiro, um, let's dissect this Candace Owens tweet a little bit. The idea that there's no society that can survive without manly men. Listen, there's always going to be manly men. Like, there's always going to be men who feel very traditionally masculine, however you want to define that. And that's fine. That's fine. People can act however they want to act. They can be however they want to be. A lot of people have natural inclinations in one direction or another direction, and it is what it is. So the idea that, like, oh, Harry Styles is wearing a dress on a magazine cover, therefore, like, there's going to be no more manly men at some point, that's just absurd. There's always going to be manly men. There's always going to be, you know, people who fall, uh, you know, somewhere on the spectrum of what we would consider the traditional gender roles, okay? So... When she says, the East knows this, in the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. By the way, that's not even happening. Like, I don't know what she's talking about. There's no schools that are like, let's teach Marxism as if Marxism is like our, our philosophy that we want the kids to adopt and believe in. I'm sure there are plenty of people watching my show right now who would go, yeah, I wish that was the case. But everybody knows it's not the case. So I don't know what she's talking about. There's no place around the country where, you know, like public schools are like, let me teach you Marxism. And this is what you should believe. And this is how you should live the rest of your life. That doesn't exist. So this is typical, like, I don't know, man, these far right pundits are just absolute clowns. Like everything they say is silly and stupid. So to dissect it is almost too much of a pain in the ass because it's like, I have to... I have to stop with every sentence and be like, this is wrong. Um, so then Ben Shapiro jumps in to agree with her. Okay. And um, Twitter was making fun of both of them. So 
So Ben Shapiro got all up in his feelings, and he went on his show, and here's Squeaky Benjamin himself responding to everything that unfolded. Let's assume for a second the honesty of some folks on the left to at least acknowledge that femininity and masculinity exist. They also have indicators, outward indicators. Dress has been, for virtually all time and in virtually all cultures, an outward indicator, which is why the Bible explicitly says that it is against cross-dressing, for example. Okay, but in virtually every culture, men and women dress differently. This does not mean that all men dress the same and all women in all cultures dress the same. It means that in every culture there is a distinction between how men dress and how women dress. The stupidest form of the argument that I saw yesterday online was, well, in Scotland they wear kilts. Hmm? That means that a man in America wearing a skirt, a floofy skirt, is the same as a man in Scotland wearing a kilt. No, because they also distinguish between how men wear clothes and women wear clothes in Scotland, too. It's just that men wear different clothes than men in America. It's the most idiotic thing. And people are like, well, yeah, back in Roman times, men wore togas. You understand, those were basically just dresses. Yes, and women wore a different form of clothing. At the time, women and men were distinguishable by dress. They have always been distinguishable by dress in virtually every human culture. And noting that men wore floofier stuff in the 16th century in Britain does not change the fact that women wore completely different clothing in the 16th century in Britain. Right? This is a category error, you morons, to suggest that because men wore something like a kilt in Scotland, and if you transferred over to America, would look more feminine. Therefore, a man wearing a skirt in America in 2020 is, is just the same in the male-female paradigm as a man wearing a kilt in Scotland in 1590. is insane and idiotic and ridiculous on its face, and we all know that. Okay, pretending that men dressing like women is not about feminizing men is ridiculous because they are overtly celebrating the fact that style is, fem- that style is feminizing masculinity. So this is all a big gaslighting effect, right? Who cares? <laughs> he gets so passionate and so worked up, and it's like, who fucking cares, bro? Who cares? Who cares? If there's some androgynous boy band member who wants to dress in a dress, who cares? Who cares? And then, of course, you go back through history, and you find there are many men who've you know, had this role. Prince, I believe, did it. David Bowie did it. Like, this is not a new thing. This is not a new thing. There are some, like, artsy, creative people who, this is what they do. This is their path. Now, I didn't give a fuck when Prince did it. I don't give a fuck. I didn't give a fuck when David Bowie did it. I don't give a fuck when Harry Styles does it. Harry Styles can do whatever the fuck he pleases as long as he's not hurting anybody else. And I do not care. So I don't, like, that's the response to you, Benjamin. The response is not, like, let me epically own you on gender roles, and let me tell you why you're wrong, bro. No, the response is, who the fuck cares? You guys get triggered when you see something like Harry Styles. Candace Owens got triggered when she saw an individual make a personal choice. By the way, what happened to that? These guys love to claim the mantle of freedom. We believe in individual and personal freedom. That's what we believe in because we're right-wingers. Yes. And then here's a guy who actually embraces his freedom and does whatever he wants, and they're like, oh, my God, how could you? The feminization of a man, and this is unbelievable. Let me talk about this for an hour and a half. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? The culture war is so stupid. It's so stupid. You're arguing about a boy band member in a dress at a time when we still have seven countries that we're bombing. 30% of the country is on the brink of foreclosure or evictions. As soon as those protections are gone, 
we're fucked, and over 230,000 Americans are dead from a pandemic. And this idiot's taking time out of his day. Oh, my God, Harry Styles in a dress. Oh, my God. Now let me epically own you like Epic Logic Man and tell you why. It's actually, actually, boys are boys and girls are girls. Thank you very much. Oh, Ben. Oh, that's so smart, bro. Oh, you epically wrecked them, bro. You're so rational. You're so, like, about facts and stuff, bro. It's so amazing. Shut up. Who gives a fuck? Like, the whole... It's funny because they're guilty of the thing that they accuse the left of. Like, you know what the left did when Harry Styles wore a dress on a magazine cover? Oh, okay, cool. They're the ones who get triggered and become snowflakes and scream about it and say it's the downfall of Western civilization because a boy band member wore a dress. That's not the downfall of Western civilization. That's called a Tuesday, bitch. I'd be surprised if an androgynous boy band member didn't wear a dress. Okay, no disrespect to Nick Carter or Justin Timberlake. (laughs) But, yeah, like, that's going to always exist. You know what else is going to always exist? Guys who look like fucking lumberjacks and like working with their hands and being manly men. That's always going to exist, too. So, but no, they feel, like, threatened, which is an interesting response, right? Because it almost makes you think, like, what what do you actually want to do? Because they make it seem like, oh, my God, if you allow men to do this, well, obviously all the men are going to do that. No, I've never felt the urge to put on a dress ever in my life. Never occurred to me. Never occurred to me. But they're like, if you let men do it, all men are going to do it. Well, why would you think that? Because I really want to do it. Like, there's a weird psychological thing going on, right? Where they fear, like, if we don't have these really hardcore rules and stick to them, that, like, somehow everybody's going to start doing things that are really only done by a tiny percentage of the population. It's, it's just silly. It's just silly. Funny enough, if you're a manly man, you are not at all threatened by a man in a dress. Manly men don't give a fuck what other men wear. <laughs> they just don't. They just don't. But Ben Shapiro has spent more time on that. He's more triggered by this than any of the real problems in the country. And that says a lot. Listen, I said it before. I'll say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. The culture war is incredibly stupid. There's many smart people, I'm not saying Ben is among them, by the way, but there's many smart people who have been lost on the battlefield of the culture war, and they lose any touch with reality and regular people. People care about their wallets. People care about their wages. People care about, you know, stability, security. And instead, we get melting down over a guy wearing a dress. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Who cares? Apparently, they care a lot. But funny enough, they'll still do the whole, like, what are you triggered, lefty, you little lefty snowflake? Is that what you are? You're so triggered? No, you guys are the triggered ones, which is why fucking Candace Owens, I mean, let me read this one more time. She said, there is no society that can survive without strong men. The East knows this. In the West, the steady feminization of our men at the same time that Marxism is being taught to our children is not a coincidence. It's an outright attack. Bring back manly men. You're the one who's melting down, acting like there will never be manly men ever again because one dude decided to wear a dress on a magazine cover. You guys are the triggered snowflakes. And you guys are the ones who are clearly against personal choice and freedom. Because I don't care what anybody wears. You guys seem to care a lot. Instead of caring about, like, innocent people being bombed or people dying of COVID or people on the brink of being kicked out of their homes. So, anyway, listen, I don't even need to say anymore. This stuff is a joke. Go ahead. You know, you pick who you want to listen to. You want to go listen to a ridiculous person who melts down over guys in dresses or you want to listen to the adults. Your choice. Okay, next. 
Joe Biden gave a speech on the economy, and we're going to talk about that. Joe Biden gave a speech on the economy, and um, let me give you some key bullet points from it. This is from Jeff Stein. Joe Biden today, no government contracts will be given to companies that don't make their products here in America. Heather Long says Biden wants big stimulus, $3 trillion, electric vehicles and 550,000 new charging stations, modernizing infrastructure, 1.5 million new affordable housing units, paid sick leave, paid family leave, $15 minimum wage, and he says that he's a union guy. So... Um, my job is to keep it real with you guys. In terms of the priorities he laid out, they're good. They're really good. I like everything he said there. Now, on the, on the issue of what Jeff Stein points out there, the, um, the Buy America executive order, if he actually signs this executive order, and there's no you know, nonsense and loopholes and wiggle room and whatnot, I'll come out here on this show and I will give Joe Biden a tremendous amount of credit because he would have earned that credit. Because this is an executive order that Trump said a million times that he was going to sign and that this is something he cared deeply about, and he didn't sign the executive orders that would have actually made a difference. What he did is he switched it with a symbolic Buy America Week executive order, which was just some nonsense where you know, com- American companies came to the White House and they did this whole thing where it was theater and they showed, here's the great products we make. But there was nothing tangible associated with Buy America Week. It was all symbolic. The real Buy America executive orders that matter is exactly what Jeff Stein is pointing out here and exactly what Joe Biden was talking about, where, you know, you, you make it so that there are no federal government contracts that go to companies that don't make their products here in America. I mean, that's huge. Right now, we don't have it like that. Right now, we have it so it's us and all of our allies. I mean, to our allies, I love you, but I want to I make sure our country is thriving and our companies are doing well. So, yeah, you should only buy for the federal government products that are made here in America. If he signs that, I will give him a lot of credit, and I will be happy. I'll be excited. I'm rooting for Joe Biden, ladies and gentlemen. I want him to make the cynics like me look stupid. Nothing would make me happier than Joe Biden making me look stupid with all of my skepticism and my cynicism. You know, do it, Uncle Joe. Go out there and, you know, you be the best president since FDR, and I'll, I'll become a hardcore Biden bro, dog. I'll become a hardcore Biden bro because it's all about policy to me. That's all that matters. Now, let's go through the rest of it. Um, He says he wants a big stimulus of $3 trillion. This one is probably not going to happen, and it's not going to happen because they don't have the numbers for it. They simply don't have the numbers for it. Even if Democrats get the House, the Republicans can just filibuster, and they probably will. Excuse me. Even if the uh, Democrats get the Senate is what I meant to say. Um, the Republicans can filibuster, and they probably will. And so the stimulus wouldn't go anywhere because you're not going to get any Republicans on board. That's a shame. Um, It's good that he says he wants it, but I don't know what kind of plan he has to make it happen because I don't think there's really any chance of that happening. The electric vehicles thing, again, I don't know how he's going to do that. Basically, the only things that there's a chance of him doing are the things through executive order, which is why the Buy America thing is huge. Modernizing infrastructure, again, I don't think he could do that through executive order. 1.5 million new affordable housing units, I don't think he could do that through executive order. Paid sick and paid family leave, 
He might be able to do that for some people through executive order, for like federal government employees. Can he do it for the entire country? I don't know. I don't know if he could do that. Now, listen, you've got to surround yourself with experts on this stuff, and maybe you can find loopholes and, and a way to get these things done legally through executive order. And by the way, take any opportunity you can. Good argument, bad argument, I don't care. If you make this law, make the Republicans take you to court to slap it down and then say that they're the face of the people who took away your paid sick leave and your paid family leave. So is it possible to get that one through executive order? Maybe, maybe. At the very least, for some portions of the economy, yes, you can. So that'd be good if he did that. $15 minimum wage, again, I think that's got to go through um, through Congress, and I don't – it already passed through the, the House. I don't think it would get through the Senate, so we're stuck on that one. So even though he's laying out priorities here that are good, the only ones that you could rest assured something will be done – are the ones where he can do it through executive order. So um, we'll really have to wait and see how bold he's willing to be through executive orders. And, you know, my approach is whatever the hell you can get done through that, get done through that, and don't you dare, you know, negotiate against yourself. Don't you dare become your own worst enemy. You can find a legal expert to give you a rationale that, yeah, you're able to do certain things that maybe you thought you weren't able to do. I learned just this week or last week that you can eliminate student loan debt through executive order. And it's not even really controversial. Like, he would be able to do that. Um, so, and there's another thing. We might talk about this later as well. Uh, David Dayen wrote a great article on this. You could give everybody Medicare through executive order. There's a, a provision of the Social Security Act, and there's also a part of Obamacare um, that there's a place in Montana where there was, like, this big problem with the air and, the people were poisoned, and under the Affordable Care Act, those people got single-payer health care. And there's a provision about how, basically like in emergencies, you could give people, you could expand Medicare and give it to them. The entire country is in an emergency because of COVID-19. In theory, you could give everybody Medicare. So, like, you could do a lot more, even than I originally thought through executive order. He should do as much as humanly possible, but, of course, he's not going to do some of the best ones. Like, he's not going to do Medicare for all through executive order. And I bet he's not going to go nearly as far as I want him to. But... Again, you might be able to find the legal authority to do a lot of stuff that, you know, is on our agenda. But we'll have to wait and see how far he goes. But in terms of the substance of his speech, it really wasn't a bad speech. In fact, it was a good speech. Mm, okay. Now we've got to talk about the student loan debt part. Now we got to talk about the student loan debt part. Joe Biden was asked if he'd eliminate student loan debt, and um, he gave an interesting answer. On the economy, uh, the vice president-elect talked about having an economy uh, that works for working people. One thing I didn't hear you talk specifically about is canceling student loan debt. Does student loan forgiveness figure in your plan? Would you take executive action to achieve it? It does figure in my plan. I've laid out in detail. For example, the, uh, uh, the legislation passed by the Democratic House calls for immediate $10,000 forgiveness of student loans. It's holding people up. They're in real trouble. They're having to make choices between paying their student loan and paying their rent, those kinds of decisions. It should be done immediately. In addition to that, as you know, I think that everything from community college straight through to doubling Pell Grants to making sure that we have access free education for anyone making under $125,000 for four years of college, and 
There is a program that exists now under the law that forgives student loans for being able to engage in, engage in public service. I'm, I'm going to institute that fundamental change in that so it's able to be available to everyone that, in fact, is engaged. It's not being very well managed right now. So I'm going to do all of those things. Thank you. Now, if you go back and watch that clip again, there are parts that are concerning because of the way in which he answers. He basically brings up like a house bill where there's a certain amount of the student loan debt that's eliminated. But if he's bringing up the house bill, that means he's saying, I want to do this with Congress. It would get through the house. It would die in the Senate. There's no way this is going to get through the Senate. And then it wouldn't reach his desk. So if he's kind of relying on a House bill, what he's saying is, I don't have the executive authority, or I don't want to use the executive authority to eliminate student loan debt or even reduce student loan debt. And so the next day, he came out and he clarified a little bit. Um, and I'll read you the tweet. This is from NPR. On Monday, President-elect Joe Biden affirmed his support for erasing some student debt, quote, immediately, the provision calls for the federal government to pay off up to $10,000 in private non-federal student loans for economically distressed borrowers. Their means testing too much, and now it's getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And um, again, I just learned this week or last week that um, any president has the authority to wipe the student loan debt slate clean. Trump has suspended student loan payments because of COVID, because people couldn't pay it. And so he temporarily suspended it. You have the, the, the president has the authority through an executive order to say, we're going to, nobody has to pay student loans back anymore. We're going to wipe the debt slate clean. But instead of doing that, he's hinting, I'll either use the House bill, which won't get to his desk because it won't pass the Senate, or he'll do some weird mill ground thing under existing law and won't go nearly far enough. So listen, I don't want to downplay if he does any amount of student loan debt forgiveness, that is going to help a tremendous number of people. So I would encourage him to, to do something. But at the same time, he's making it clear he's going to disappoint on this front. Anything short of wiping the student loan debt slate clean, I think, is kind of bullshit. But, you know, he ain't going to do that. And then originally people were talking about a number of wiping $50,000 off of it. He ain't going to do that. Now we're talking about 10000 but only the provision calls for the federal government to pay off up to 10,000 in private non-federal student loans for economically distressed borrowers. And then he also said the thing at the end about, oh, if you do like community service, then well, it's like uh, your means testing too much, man. No, 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 no. You should just wipe the student loan debt slate clean. That's over a trillion dollars, by the way, in stimulus. Over a trillion dollars in stimulus, and that money will then be used by people to, to boost the economy in other ways. I know a lot of people who are really held back by their student loans. And there's this new right-wing talking point that's floating around is like, oh, this, is a, this would actually only help the wealthy. What are you talking about? No, this is going to help middle-class people and poor people massively. A lot of the wealthy people I know, they didn't, never had student loans. Their parents paid for their college. A lot of people who took out student loans are either middle-class middle or poor, and they're still paying it back. I don't know where this notion came from of like, oh, this is going to help the upper middle class or First of all, and, and, and putting all that stuff aside, too, as a matter of principle, I don't think there should be student loans. I don't think that should exist in the same way I don't think that medical debt should exist. So if you told me, hey, to get rid of medical debt, that only helps the upper middle class, I'd say, I don't care. Medical debt shouldn't exist. Wipe it clean. I don't care if it was only the rich who had medical debt. Wipe it clean. 
Medical debt is a thing that shouldn't exist. Get rid of it. Student loan debt is a thing that shouldn't exist. Get rid of it. You want to better your life and improve your life and have better job prospects, and you got to go into massive debt to do it? I mean, what a shitty system. It's a weird form of, like, indentured servitude. But anyway, not going nearly far enough. I hope he does, man. I don't know how many times I could say this on the show, but bottom line, I really hope that Joe Biden proves the skeptics and the cynics like myself wrong, and he is the best president since FDR, and he realizes how serious the moment is. But, you know, he only has flashes here and there of good things. A lot of the stuff is like this, which is just so mealy mouth and weaselly, and he's using weasel words. And uh, I don't have high hopes on this front for student debt, but I guess we'll have to wait and see how it unfolds. All right, this next one is... Uh, <laughs> this, there's a lot to say about this next one. Because... Chose a side of Obama that we haven't uh, really gotten to see. Barack Obama released a new book, and uh, I'm sure I could sit here and do a thousand segments on it. I already saw Ben Norton tweeted a portion of it where he defends his drone war, which killed a lot of civilians. He also said he was never a, a wholesale critic of George W. Bush's entire counterterrorism strategy. Mm. That's the problem. That's the problem. So I could talk about that. I could talk about a million uh, you know, different parts of it. But I want to show you this one because it made me laugh, and I feel compelled to, to share it all with you for a variety of reasons. So um, as, as one of the Chapo Trap House guys said, it feels like Obama's written, like, five autobiographies now. And, you know, his stuff is like, me, 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 me. Now, I get it. You were the president. That's interesting enough, and people are going to want to know every angle of you. But look at this. Obama, on how his discovery of Marx and Foucault in college became inseparable from, quote, a strategy for picking up girls. He says, looking back, it's embarrassing to recognize the degree to which my intellectual curiosity – those first two years of college was paralleled, those first two years of college paralleled the interests of various women I was attempting to get to know. Marx and Marcuse, so I had something to say to the long-legged socialist who lived in my dorms. Fannin and Gwendolyn Brooks for the smooth-skinned sociology major who never gave me a second look. Foucault and Wolf for the ethereal bisexual who wore mostly black. As a strategy for picking up girls, my pseudo-intellectualism proved most worthless. I found myself in a series of affectionate but chaste friendships. Chaste, chaste friendships. So my initial reaction to this was like, that's the saddest thing I've ever fucking heard. He was reading philosophy just to attempt to get laid. That's my gut reaction. I actually think that's really, like, pathetic. That's sort of like, that's just weak. Um, but then I was reading some of the responses to this tweet and people were like, yeah, this is how like every guy gets into this stuff. And I was like, really? Now, listen, this is just me, but I, I felt like I was big on Chomsky. Chomsky was one of the early inspirations. And I felt like when I was reading Chomsky, if anything, it was sort of an escape from all the regular, you know, late teens, early twenties, um, 
chaos and mayhem and, and hormones and weird dynamics going on around you and concerned about females. And like, I always felt like that was more of an oasis from the bullshit. He's, he's admitting in no uncertain terms. Like, no, I actually, the reason I was reading Marx and Foucault was because I wanted to get laid and the girls I was interested in were interested in this. So I don't know. I'm really doing this segment because I'm interested in what you guys think. Am I wrong when I say I think this is kind of pathetic? That it is like the definition of pseudo-intellectualism. I'm only going to get into this because I, there's, it's a means to an end, and the end is just getting laid from some weird college chick. I think that is kind of sad and stupid. Because, again, I viewed it more as like reading Chomsky was like, the escape from all that other stuff. So it was good for what it was. It was interesting for what it was. It wasn't like a means to an end for something else. Um, so I'm, I'm somewhat like offended by this because it, I can't fathom that somebody thinks like that. But I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Uh, is this really the thing that happens with a lot of guys where it's like, yeah, I'll get into like, you know, whatever, certain, uh, certain ideological schools of thought or philosophies because I think it's going to get me laid. Like, I understand that a lot of what people do is based around that. And I'm not judging that because that's just human nature. That just is what it is. People want to get laid, of course. So I'm not judging doing stuff to get laid. I guess what I'm saying is, is, is the intellectual pursuit leading to that as cuckish and weird and pathetic as I think, or is that really the thing that like, you know, basically all these guys are out there doing? Because I always felt like in my experience, if somebody was interested in those topics, they really were interested in those topics. It wasn't like a means to an end for something else, or it was always like, if somebody's reading Chomsky, they, they like Chomsky a lot. And it was never about like, let me get this done so I can get my dick sucked or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know. Um, that's why I'm asking you guys, but it's quite an admission. What I will give him credit for is the honesty of it, because he's opening himself up to criticisms from assholes like me who think this is kind of sad and pathetic. So I do give him credit for the honesty of it, and I don't think a lot of people, even if this was what they were doing, I don't think they'd be honest about it. Um, but yeah, am I the one who's wrong? Is this actually something I shouldn't judge and something that's just kind of happens a lot? Or I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. And I guess that's because I always felt that like, not that, not that intellectual pursuits are like more sacred, but it was more of an escape. Like the intellectual pursuits were an escape from the normal nonsense that you have to deal with. He puts that front and center as part of the nonsense. Like, let me read this in order to get laid. And by the way, I don't think you're really going to grasp it. I don't think you're really going to digest it if that's why you're doing it. Because you're not doing it because you enjoy it. You're doing it for something else. You're doing it because the thing you enjoy is getting laid. Now, I get it. We all enjoy getting laid, but I don't know. It kind of dirties this stuff. It kind of dirties the intellectual pursuits in a way. But, hey, that might explain a lot about Obama and how he governed, I guess. Okay, Charlie Kirk time. Charlie Kirk is very concerned about the left's war on Thanksgiving. This is, I guess, the new thing since the war on Christmas has sort of played out. Take a look. The left has always hated Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving 
can be interpreted as a religious holiday if you believe in giving thanks to a creator. But they hate Thanksgiving because they believe there is nothing you should be thankful for in America. This is an awful place. It is cancerous, rotten to the core, tear it all down, burn it from within. Why would you be thankful? Instead, we need a revolution. Remember, as the Students for a Democratic Society radicals once wrote in the 1960s, they said, conflict is the origin of everything. What happens when you're thankful? By definition, you're less likely to be involved and engaged in conflict. Thanksgiving is supposed to de-escalate any sort of pre-existing issues in our country. And now they're using the virus as an excuse for you not to be thankful. We'll be right back. To put this into context for you guys, there are state governments around the country that are saying, okay, listen, there's a pandemic. It's raging out of control. Uh, the numbers, we keep hitting records on a daily basis. Um, it, it's really, it, it's scary because you're at, you're at the point where hospitals in many places are at capacity and are going to be over capacity. And then you have the death rate go up even more because you don't have enough people to give the medical care to the people who need it. It really is a mess. So what you have is the state governments basically saying, hey, listen, it, if you want to make sure you don't get COVID, here are some things that you could do. Try to maintain social distancing. Try to wear masks whenever you can. If you're in a place where it's warm enough, open the windows to circulate the air. Um, if you can, sit outside with one of those heater things. That would be wonderful as well. Basically, the state governments are trying to say, there's a pandemic. We know there's a pandemic. Here are the things that you could do that would really help. And what people on the far right are doing is they're taking these guidelines. They're pretending, by the way, like it's tyrannical and mandatory and you're going to get thrown in the gulag if you don't do these things. Of course, you're not. It's ridiculous. But they're taking these and they're acting like, aha, gotcha. The left simply hates Thanksgiving and now you're waging a war on Thanksgiving. No, we just don't want people to get sick and die as a result of their Thanksgiving dinners. That's all. That's all. You know, the state government can say things, and it could be actual sound advice on how to move forward. But they view anything that they say as like, well, this is tyrannical, and this is a dictatorship, and you guys are taking my freedom. For the love of God. I mean, listen, there's, <laughs> you can make the argument, oh, the seatbelt is a big restriction on freedom. But nobody really says that anymore because we know how many lives it saves because it's not that much to do this. Click. You know, but by the same token, face masks, face masks are a very similar thing. There should be a national face mandate, face mask mandate. But I, there will be people, Charlie Kirk included, who view it as like the most tyrannical overreach ever, even though that if you do that alone, it'll probably save hundreds of thousands of lives. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about like guidelines where they say, hey, here's how you don't get COVID and die. And he's like outraged by that. And now he's acting like there's a there's a war on Thanksgiving. So some of the things he says, the left has always hated Thanksgiving. I always, it's always funny to me when you hear people on the right talk about the left because I'm in these left-wing circles. Nobody ever says the things that they say they say. The things that the right accuses the left of believing and saying, they just don't, nobody ever says it. It's like how they, they all think like Saul Alinsky is our overlord. Most of the people I know on the left haven't even read Saul Alinsky, okay? <laughs> so it's just, it's absurd 
that they listen to Kyle Kalinske, but not Saul Linsky. Um, he says the left believes there's nothing you should be thankful for. Charlie, left-wingers have families, too. Left-wingers have friends, too. Left-wingers participate in this country's traditions, some begrudgingly, some not. You know, it varies from person to person who's a fan of the holiday season and who isn't. But you get that among conservatives and Republicans, too. You know, some people like the holiday season. Some people don't like the holiday season. Then he makes the argument, well, the reason they hate Thanksgiving is because it takes away from the revolution. How do you even respond to something like that? Could you imagine that conversation actually happening behind the scenes? Like I'm talking to Cenk Uger or something or, or, or Jimmy Dore, and I'm like, we're going to cancel Thanksgiving this year, right? If people get together and if people are thankful for stuff, they're not mad, and then they don't want to do the revolution. We've got to cancel Thanksgiving to keep everybody mad for the revolution. It's just this is crazy. This is crazy. Now, the final point is, here we go again. We just covered the story, Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens going all in, slamming Harry Styles for wearing a dress. Who cares if Harry Styles wears a dress? And now you have Charlie Kirk pretending like the left is waging a war on Thanksgiving. This is all a distraction, guys. The culture war is all a distraction. They try to get people outraged about menial nonsense bullshit. And, you know, they try to make it seem like the left is coming for everything that you happen to like in your life, every little nicety, every little personal thing. But that's not true. And this is just a giant distraction from the fact that these guys really don't have any solutions or answers on the serious issues. They don't. You know, I mean, again, we're bombing seven different countries. Trump's pretending to end the wars. He's not. He's keeping the troops there. 30% of the country is on the brink of being foreclosed on or evicted. As soon as those protections are gone, we're screwed. 230,000 Americans and rising. Uh, have died from COVID. The economy is a house of cards. I mean, we got all these problems. And instead of addressing these problems substantively with real policy, we got Ben Shapiro crying about Harry Styles in a dress. And we got Charlie Kirk pretending like the left is trying to ban Thanksgiving. No, the left was like, hey, I don't want you to die. So just here's some thoughts as to what you do on Thanksgiving to try to live. <gasps> How could you? You hate freedom and you're a dictator, and you just want the revolution, and you hate Thanksgiving. For the love of God, stop being ridiculous. There's no war on Thanksgiving. There's no war on Christmas. But I'll go a step further. Even if there was, who cares? Because <laughs> nobody's really trying to take it away from you. You do whatever you want to do on Christmas and Thanksgiving. If somebody doesn't like the holiday season, whoop de freaking do That's called freedom. That's what they, they get to feel that way and, and live accordingly. So it's just... They're going hard on the culture war bullshit because they don't have much productive to say on the things that matter. All right, let me take one more quick, quick final break, and then we'll be back. And I still got three awesome stories for you. Well, awesome depending on how you view it, including Nancy Pelosi. Oh, boy, she's going to be Speaker of the House again. Stay right there, guys. We'll be right back.
We are back, bitch. We are back. We are back. We are back, mofos. And we still have a lot of stuff to talk about. Okay. Okay, here we go. Nancy Pelosi refuses to learn any lessons or go away after the Democrats got steamrolled in the election. The LA Times says, with no challenger insight, Speaker Nancy Pelosi should breeze through her re-election bid in today's House leadership vote and move closer to what is expected to be her final two-year term in the high-profile post. Um, Update on this. She just breezed through. I saw the news like five minutes ago. Nancy Pelosi is the Speaker of the House after the Democrats performed significantly worse than they should have in an election against Donald Trump and his Republican Party. By the way, Chuck Schumer, exact same thing. He was um, picked to continue leading the Democrats in the Senate even though there was a 75% chance that the Democrats were supposed to win the Senate, and they still might not win the Senate. We have two runoff elections in Georgia, and we're going to have to see what happens in those two races. But if the Democrats do win the Senate, it'll be barely, by the slimmest of margins. Um, It's very possible they don't. It's not likely that they don't, in which case they didn't even win the Senate, even though there was a 75% chance that they were supposed to win the Senate. This leadership is abysmal. This leadership is to blame for the losses. It's not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's not Ilhan Omar. It's not Rashida Tlaib. It's not Bernie Sanders. When you go and look at who was used in the attack ads, it's almost always Nancy Pelosi. And by the way, people who've canvassed can tell you this. I saw a great tweet about this earlier. Yeah, go knock on some doors and see who's hated in swing districts among swing voters. It's Nancy Pelosi. It's the leadership of the Democratic Party, the current leadership of the Democratic Party. They're in this position because they're like the Washington generals. So they're corporatists. They represent those special interests. And oftentimes they get steamrolled by the Republicans. And Really, their job is to keep the left in line. Their job is to make sure that we don't have social democracy. Their job is to make sure the Democratic Party continues with its new Democrat triangulation losing ways. We had Bill Clinton, then we had Barack Obama, now we have Joe Biden, all neoliberal corporatists, and it's, it's constant underperforming, constant underperforming and underdelivering. You know, they view their job as to make sure we don't have Medicare for all, we don't have free college, we don't end the wars. And um, 
they represent that donor class well, which is why they keep leading the Democratic Party. Now, I will say, if you're not frustrated with the left, you're not paying attention. Because it is so easy to placate the left, man, it's pathetic. All you have to do is say to them, because this happened last time, too, and even I fell for it. Like, oh, the only option of the people running, like Nancy Pelosi is the furthest of all the op- left of all the options running, which was true. But okay, have somebody else run. Why is the left not organized? Why is the left not strategizing? Why is the left not building bridges behind the scenes, not just with their fellow lefties, but also with Democrats who don't agree with them? Become friends with Democrats who don't even necessarily agree with you, and then you'll have the ability to use that friendship, leverage that friendship in the future. Listen, Nancy Pelosi is despised throughout the country. Her approval rating is abysmally low. You're telling me you couldn't organize and strategize behind the scenes to make sure that this 80-year-old who's failing, failed at her job, that she couldn't be ousted? It's because they're all, when it comes down to it, they're all like authoritarians to some degree. They think, oh, we're the new kids on the block. There are rules here that are already established. There's a hierarchy. I'll know my place in the hierarchy. And it's her turn, and it's not over till she says it's over. Wrong. Your job is to represent the people of your district. Your job is to represent the American people. You know Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are not doing that effectively. So why would you not organize and strategize behind the scenes and mount a challenge to Nancy Pelosi? At least try, for Christ's sake. They didn't. The left all fell in line behind Pelosi. Now, what does Pelosi do? Pelosi made sure that she's the one who throws some crumbs at the left and gives them pats on the back behind the scenes and tells them they're doing a good job. She also does the same with the right-wing Democrats. And so she's the one who's built those relationships where she ends up breezing through all the time. I don't get why the left isn't intelligent about how to play politics and how to win and how to get our policies implemented. They don't, it's like there's no strategy. They have no idea what they're doing. They're just like sitting back and watching everything unfold and acting like they're not active participants in it. You're definitely active participants, and you've been played for a fool. You've been played for a fool. Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi is still the Speaker of the House after taking gigantic losses, and nobody even likes her, and she's still the Speaker of the House. And then the Democrats wonder why they don't do well, because this is the face of the Democratic Party. This is the face of the Democratic Party. Somebody with an approval rating, I don't even remember what it was, 20%, 30%, something along those lines. She's more unpopular than Donald Trump. And you wonder why the Democrats aren't doing well. It's pathetic, man. The left needs to get its act together and mount a challenge and um, take over this party hostily if need be. Because this is unacceptable. And it's it's, it's nonstop, status quo, business as usual nonsense and it's going to get us absolutely nowhere because it's gotten us nowhere in the past. If anything, it's gotten us more down the wrong path. Okay. I like this next story. Donald Trump's absolute favorite show has now abandoned him, and they're begging him to be a big boy.
But uh, here's the thing. I think for the President of the United States, uh, while he continues to fight on, and this is probably going to be the, the end of the week for Pennsylvania if they don't produce something, I think it's going to in the country's best interest if he starts coordinating on the virus and starts coordinating with security with the Biden team and just brief them. Because on the virus, we need, we're going to be able to get this out as soon as two weeks. We need to coordinate on the transportation and implementation. Uh, and you'll see how thorough the planning is, has been so we don't drop the ball in a little while. Meanwhile... Donald Trump's favorite show is saying, hey, man, stop messing around. Biden's team needs to be briefed. Biden's team needs to be in on the inner workings of the government. And really, the implication is because they're going to take over. They're telling Trump, stop being a baby. They're telling Trump to act like an adult and start with the process of the peaceful transition of power. They're telling Trump, this is Fox and Friends, his favorite show. The one he used to call into all the time. That's amazing. Now listen, what I would say to the hardcore Trump people, guys, what did you expect? I'm sorry. One American News Network is lying to you. Newsmax is lying to you. Every far right-wing pundit who's spreading misinformation is lying to you. They're doing wishful thinking. Some of these people know they're lying. Some of these people don't know they're not lying. Some of these people really think there is some supercomputer in Germany that found that Trump won 400 electoral votes or something like that. It's not true. None of it's true. All of these court cases about the, the fraud that's happening all over the country and, and the election was rigged and stolen, all these court cases are getting slapped down one by one because there's no there there. There's no evidence there. It's not true. I get it. Donald Trump is a guy who has one gear and it's relentless offense. And so you might get caught up in that and think, well, he seems confident like he won. He keeps saying he won. He's wrong. It's not true. And in the case of him, I think he knows he's lying as he keeps pushing forward at 1,000 miles an hour. But, like, you got to actually look at the evidence objectively. And even if I grant you all these cases of fraud, there's still not enough for him to overturn these states. Georgia's gone. Arizona's gone. Nevada's gone. Pennsylvania, he's up by a full point, like 80,000 votes. It's over. It's done, son. Even Fox News knows it. And that's why they're now losing the hardcore Trump supporters. They're all going, fleeing to One America News Network now. And Trump is dumping on Fox News, too. Man, there's a real break in the party. And it's kind of funny watching these guys try to manage Trump like he's a toddler and sort of like ease into the points, like ease into it. Like, yeah, maybe you should maybe uh, get Biden in on those briefings and whatnot because it might be a good idea because of COVID and foreign policy. I don't know, man. I'm just saying you can see that they're walking on eggshells. And you can see in the faces of the other hosts, they're like, oh, God, I hope this doesn't lead to negative, bad tweets at us. What a situation we're in, man. It really is crazy. I'm sorry, MAGA people. It's over. The election was not stolen. It was not stolen. It's a large victory for Biden. Almost 6 million votes now. 6 million vote lead. But even putting aside the popular vote lead, when it goes, comes to the states, 306. Trump himself called that a landslide in 2016 when he did it. So I know it hurts. I know it hurts, but you've been rejected, and it's time to digest that. All right, guys, final story of the day, baby. CNN, 
spoke to a nurse on the front lines of the pandemic in South Dakota. And what she says is really mind-boggling. The worst place in the country for coronavirus this morning is South Dakota. It's experiencing record cases, deaths, and hospital levels. The positivity rate there is the highest in the nation at almost 60%. The state has taken a hands-off approach to public health protocols recommended by the CDC. Back in July, President Trump hosted an Independence Day celebration, as you can see on your screen. This was in a packed amphitheater at Mount Rushmore. A month later, nearly a half million bikers flooded into the town of Sturgis for an annual motorcycle rally. South Dakota's Republican Governor, Kristi Noem, supported both events and refuses to issue public safety directives such as wearing masks. Here's what she said a couple of weeks ago at a Trump rally. The only reason you know who I am today is because the liberals have been busy kicking me in the head for all the decisions I've made for my people in South Dakota. But let me tell you, my people are happy. They're happy because they're free. We invited Governor Nome to join us this morning, but she declined. Be sure to describe what she's seeing on the front lines in South Dakota is Jody Doring. She's a registered nurse who has called the coronavirus crisis in her state, quote, a horror movie that never ends. Um, nurse Doring, thank you so much for being here. When I read some of your tweets, my jaw dropped. You said that even now, that the, the hospital is being overrun with COVID patients. They come in. They're horribly ill. They're gasping for breath, and yet they don't believe they have COVID? Yeah, I think the hardest thing to watch is that people are still looking for something else, and they want a magic answer, and they don't want to believe that COVID is real. And the reason I tweeted what I did is it wasn't one particular patient. It's just a culmination of so many people, and their last dying words are, um, this can't be happening, it's not real, and when they should be spending time FaceTiming their families, they're filled with anger and hatred, and it just made me really sad the other night, and um, I just can't believe that those are going to be their last thoughts and words. Anger and hatred towards you? Um, You know, I think it's just... Uh, a belief that it's not real and nursing happens to be on the receiving end of that. And that's okay. We can take that. That's what you're there for. It's just in the bigger picture when you try to reason with people of, can I call your family, your kids, your wife, your friend, your brother, and they say, no, because I'm going to be fine. And you're watching their oxygen levels, um, you know, maxed out on what we call vapotherm at 100% and their oxygen level might be 75. That's not really that compatible with life and we know where that's going to head, and it just makes you um, sad and mad and frustrated, and then you know that you're just going to come back and do it all over again. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of where that stemmed from. How could it not make your own head explode? They're gasping for breath. <laughs> Their oxygen levels are dropping. What do they think is wrong with them? You know, I think people look for anything. Um, people want it to be um, influenza. They want it to be pneumonia. They want it to be, I mean, we've even had people say, well, I think maybe it might be lung cancer. I mean, something so far-fetched. And the reality is since day one when COVID started in this area in March, you've kind of been able to say if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. 
She goes on to say she lives in a town with about 360 people, and in her hospital there are more than 360 people who've died from COVID. I mean, this shows you the power of propaganda. Propaganda propaganda could be the most potent force and influence on the way people think, you know? If you're told something and that thing is not true, but you're told it over and over and over and over and over again, and then everybody around you starts parroting it, at some point, it really does become the duh position. And the duh position to these people in uh, North Dakota who are passing away from COVID is that it's obviously not real. They had to have been hearing a lot of misinformation and a lot of propaganda about how, you know, whatever, it's a liberal hoax. And like Ted Cruz said, oh, the second Biden um, is, is winner and the second he takes office, wow, it's going to disappear all of a sudden. It's worse now than ever before. Biden won the election, and it's worse now than ever before, COVID. So they've heard this. They're in their little bubble, probably Facebook, too. I mean, listen, I'm not at all in favor of censorship, and I I vehemently argued against censorship. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a giant misinformation problem. Of course there is. And there are people in their own little right-wing Facebook bubbles where they really believe, like, no, 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 COVID is fake. It's not even real. And then that really hit me, man, that she says, as they're they're dying in front of you, They're taking their last breaths, and they're saying, no, I'm not going to call my family because I'm going to be okay because this isn't real. They're telling her, I think I have lung cancer. I think I have influenza, and it's not, or pneumonia. They think it's not COVID. Oh, man. Oh, Jesus Christ, that hurts, man. There are so many things about how we've responded to this pandemic that have left me flabbergasted. And it really says quite a bit about how our society functions versus other countries. There is more of a sense of shared community and responsibility in other countries. Here, after a certain amount of time, it's like we tolerated lockdowns for a certain amount of time, and then people just went full Wild West cowboy mode and freedom mode and said, yeah, I'm kind of done with this. And then now, you know, people aren't being as careful as they should be, and we're seeing a giant spike. I mean, listen, at the very least, man, you need universal masks. At the very least, you need universal masks. Like, I get it. I feel just like everybody else in America feels. I'm as American as it gets. After a while with the lockdowns, you felt like, ah, come on, I want this to end. Um, but the threat is still real as a heart attack. And so if we're going to try to get back to some semblance of normalcy, at the same time, you need to pair that with um, safety measures like universal masks. And also, by the way, the other thing is something to cover your eyes, too, like glasses, whatever it may be, because virus can get in your eyes. I feel like that's not talked about nearly enough. So you see some people with, like, face shields and stuff. Everybody out in public who's wearing a mask should also be wearing, like, sunglasses or something or or regular glasses or goggles, whatever it may be. But, um, yeah, this is heartbreaking. It's just so heartbreaking. As people are dying, the propaganda is still the thing that's winning out in their mind. Fuck. Jesus. I'm scared to see just how high these numbers get, I got to tell you guys. I can't imagine we get out of this with fewer than 500,000 people dead. We might have over a million Americans dead when all said and done from this pandemic. That's more than any war in our history. Think about that. Think about that. So really, we should be mobilizing in a way like it's a war. 
everybody should be wearing face masks, everybody should be covering their eyes, everybody should be trying to social distance as much as possible, and we should absolutely be going, you know, full speed ahead with the medicines to distribute them all over the country, the medicines that we know work. And um, now with the vaccines, there's two promising vaccines. Hopefully they can get them out there quickly because stories like this break my heart. I really can't believe it. And you could tell she's shaken by it. Seeing people die on a daily basis, and as they die, they're denying that COVID-19 is even real. Propaganda is deadly in many instances. All right, guys, that's the show, baby. I love you all with every fiber of my being. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.